1: Take our minds and think through them. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for thee. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. What a joy it is to be invited back by your great rector to be a part of this 99th year. Ninety-nine years you all have been coming here. <laughs> this is really remarkable. Ninety-nine, so next year will be a hundred, huh? Good God willing, we'll all be here together maybe. That'd be wonderful, wouldn't it? I can't believe that this has continued. You do know that this was a tradition in many downtown Episcopal churches, throughout the nation. This is one of the few that still does it. I congratulate this church and this Revex vestry and the clergy it's had, especially your present rector, for maintaining this wonderful tradition. But I have to admit, there's a part of this tradition that's a bit different than where it exists preaching other places. While I was a rector of Trinity Wall Street in New York, occasionally somebody from Memphis would, would visit Trinity Wall Street while they were in New York. And they would come out the front door, and I'd be standing there, and they'd shake my hand, and I'd say, How are you? And she said, We're from Memphis. And I said, Oh, wonderful. We lived it. Oh, we know. Yeah, you know? You see, we always heard you at Waffle Shop. And someday, maybe this church will be called Waffle House or something. <laughs> so the, the uh, tradition lives on, and I'm proud to have been a part of it for many, many years. About 25 years ago, Tom Brokaw, of television and journalism, wrote a book called The Greatest Generation. He survived, or surveyed the lives of about 50 people who were born sometime after 1920 to arrive at this thesis of his, the greatest generation. These people that Brokaw describes were in many ways my own peers. These were the people I grew up with as a child. I was born on the south side of Chicago at the beginning of the Great Depression when that depression was slowly destroying our culture. No one escaped the brutal effects of the Great Depression. My father, who had a doctorate in music, lost his job, and he was unemployed without permanent work for 11 years, only occasionally working odd jobs. Our family of four had to move upstairs into our upstairs three rooms so we could rent the main floor for rental income. Then then came the Great War. It drafted all the able-bodied men and began to ration the commonly used products, including gasoline and rubber tires. We as kids played sandball we put baseball down on the sand lot at the corner. And every time we went to play, we had to wait for Jackie Tooley to bring his bat and his ball. Because Jackie Tooley was the only kid in the whole neighborhood who owned a bat and a ball. We shared our parents' gloves. Living with the anguish of that great depression and then have it followed by the great war, created this remarkable greatest generation. And yet with all the stress and with all the loss and all the endless struggles, I never once heard my father complain. Nor can I remember as a boy growing up, hearing the complaints of the parents of the playmates I played with in the neighborhood. It was as if there was so much more than complaining would accomplish. Like, like the house right across the street, wherein the two front windows were hanging two gold stars. Yes, they had already less lost their two sons in the early days of the war. Life was terrible, and yet Tom Brokaw did not discover in his research of the culture any complainers for us today that comparison is no less than stunning. We just read in the gospel a moment when Jesus, Jesus had plenty of reason to complain. Some Pharisees had come up to him after they would gotten word that Herod was about to kill him. Now there was plenty to complain about Jesus had known that John the Baptist had been not only head killed but beheaded and his head was placed on a platter by that same Herod and now Herod was out to kill Jesus and you thought he'd complain in some way but no he just said called Herod an old fox And then he said, go tell that old fox the good things that are going on. Tell him about the people that are being healed. Tell him the blessings that are taking place. Tell that old fox the good news, the good things. He could have gone on and on and his friends and disciples would have cheered him on if he had just complained a little bit about that old fox, or about all the atrocities that the Romans were causing as they occupied the Holy Land. But no, just one word, fox. Then he immediately changed to the good news. He used what could have been his fury for fuel. Fury transferred into fuel for change. At times you and I find ourselves mired down in fury and our own complaining as if we're trapped It's somehow or other we can't get out of that finding fault, finding fault, finding fault, complaining. And cannot turn that fury into into something that is the fuel for change. There were many times in Jesus' life when that could have happened. Remember remember when Jesus was down in Jericho and he was walking down the street and there were mobs of people around him because he was a popular figure. And he stopped and looked up in a sycamore tree and there was a man who'd crawled up into the sycamore tree. You remember Zacchaeus? Now Zacchaeus was a hated man. He was a tax collector and he was an awful tax collector. He cheated people. And he was probably the wealthiest man in town. Everybody knew who he was. And he was up in the tree because he was short. He couldn't see Jesus and he wanted to see him well so he climbed up into the sycamore tree. It would have been very easy for Jesus to stop and look up in that tree and shake his head, and everybody said, Oh, do you own. But he didn't. He took the fury that was aimed up the tree at Zacchaeus, and he used it as fuel for change. He said, Zac, shitty on down out of that tree, I want to have dinner at your house tonight with you. you remember the transformation that happened? you remember the time the woman was trapped, caught, and pulled out in front of Jesus? She'd been caught in adultery. Everybody knew what it meant. Stone to death. That was the law. Have you ever been to Israel? Well, you know the stones are everywhere. They're all over the ground. You don't need to walk 10 feet because they're a pile of stones. They'd already picked them up. They already had the right stone. Those men were standing there. They dragged her out. She was probably nude, scholars tell us. Horrible moment. Plenty of reason for Jesus to say, oh. But he didn't complain about her or what was happening. You remember what he did? He did a funny little thing. He said, the first stone is the best one to throw. So let's let's say the first stone will be thrown by the man who's never really done anything wrong. The scripture has an interesting little twist here. It says, Older men began to slip away. (laughs) You can't be an older man and think you've never done anything wrong. (laughs) And the scripture goes on to say, And finally, the youngest dropped their stones and left. And Jesus looks up and he says go and sin no more. You see you see the the truth is that this this way of thinking about about a problem, about an issue, where we get angry and upset and furious, that we use that fury for fuel. You remember the the boat came in and Jesus was standing on the shore? They'd fished all night. These are professional fishermen all night long and they hadn't caught one fish the scripture says now they were furious and Jesus could have joined in that couldn't he and he said i'd be too i'd be furious too he said throw the net on the other side of the boat Now, we all know who Peter was and what Peter was like. Here's what I imagine Peter said to himself or the other fishermen when Jesus said, throw the net on the other side of the boat. Shell the net on the other side. <laughs> Here's a preacher, trying to, a rabbi, trying to tell a fisherman how to fish. Of course, the wonderful thing is the net got full of fish and got so full of fish they had to call people from the shore to come out to help because the net was about to break. Today, our television, our internet, our print media are all feeding us every day with new reasons to complain almost turned us into a nation with a mantra. And that mantra is these three words. Ain't it awful? Now we might do some changes of the grammar there. But that's the essence of what many of us feel most of the day. Ain't this awful? Ain't that awful? We keep complaining as if, as if we're not living in the most blessed society that's ever existed. And we're still complaining. Ain't it? Ain't it awful? As a kid, when I was growing up, we did use the expression... Ain't it awful, but it was always for the weather, <laughs> like yesterday <laughs> in Memphis, Tennessee. It was awful. And it was you could see your neighbor, whoa yesterday, it wasn't it awful. And she'll say, hey, it was awful. Yeah, it was awful. Today we don't even keep it just for weather and politics almost every field now of endeavor has somebody attacking it saying ain't it ain't it awful today in our dominant culture nothing escapes ain't it awful nor have I myself escaped this negative way of thinking. It is as if we're deprived and unfulfilled, and we're needy, and we're striving, people yearning for more of everything, as if we can't get enough of what we don't need. A few weeks ago in New York, where I serve at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. We had a big celebration, lasted two hours, remembering, giving thanks for the life of Desmond Tutu, Archbishop of South Africa. While I served at Trinity Wall Street, we made many grants to Bishop Tutu. And I got to know him pretty well, and we traveled down there visiting him. He came to visit us in New York. I went around with him on various occasions and heard him speak in a number of places. Now mind you, he was living in South Africa, where apartheid was still in effect. The community he had grown up in had been bulldozed, not only bulldozed the entire town, every structure in the town had been bulldozed over. I never heard Bishop Tutu complain. He had a lot of good reason to complain his personal suffering could have filled every one of his speeches. And with the many times I've heard him speak, most of the speeches began with these words. Thank you. Thank you thank you. He was thanking the people for their prayers, for their support, for their encouragement, for being there to hear him speak. Today, we find ourselves with what I would like to suggest could almost be a public religion with the three words representing the creed of that public religion, ain't it awful? Because that's what we live by, not just with politics, but we constantly read and constantly hear and are constantly believing that things are just not right, that most things are just bad in some way or another. And that is happening right in the midst of our own ancient religious tradition that it has its three-word slogan. The good news. It's as if the good news is being swallowed up by the bad news. Ain't it awful? Awful. Author, Ernest Hemingway, once said this. There are a few words that are traditional words for our society, which capture our core beliefs, our core values, our core strengths. And then Hemingway goes on to say, we cannot use these words anymore because they no longer are at our core. Here are those words duty, honor, country. Self sacrifice, church, faith, modesty, and responsibility. Whether Ernest Hemingway is correct or not, today at this very moment we are seeing these very powerful words flourishing and grounding the very lives of a brand new greatest generation being birthed in the Ukraine. During this Lenten season, I ask myself, how I can diminish
0: my desire
1: to find fault, and instead, how can I increase my desire to say thank you, thank you, thank you? That's my and discipline. Let's do it together. Amen.
0: The Calvary Podcast theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupke, Lenten Preaching Series Coordinator. And thanks to you for listening. or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.